I'm Lauren, and I'm a veterinarian. I'm JJ, and I'm a veterinary technician. And you're listening to Introvets, a veterinary podcast by introverts with high-functioning anxiety. Welcome, everybody, to Introvets Podcast. Hi. Today, we have a special guest who is here to present a case for us. Special. So special. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Shelby Agnew graduated from Auburn University College of Veterinary Medicine in 2013. Prior to that, she also graduated from Auburn with a degree in animal and dairy science. Dr. Agnew is currently the vice president of the Madison County Veterinary Medical Association. This is her fourth appearance on the podcast. Why do we always get the giggles when you're here? Welcome back to the podcast. Dr. Agnew. Thank you for having me. Since we are presenting a case today, I am going to issue our typical disclaimer, which is this. The names and identifying information of the patients and the clients and the veterinarian and veterinary staff have all been changed to protect everyone's identity. And some details of the case, which would not affect the outcome, have been changed to further protect the identity of the patient. Okay. Dr. Agnew, what case have you brought for us to review today? Bella is a 90-pound, 7-year-old female spade Doberman. About a month ago, she had presented for pneumonia and was treated for that. She had some improved respiratory symptoms, but she was presenting today for a lethargy that had not improved. She had a decreased appetite and vomiting. This diagnosis of pneumonia about a month ago, how was that made? I believe that it was made with radiographs. Okay. How was the pneumonia treated at that time? So they treated it with doxycycline, and I believe it was also treated with a short course of furosemide. Okay. So they may not have been like 100% on their pneumonia diagnosis. So what were the physical examination findings? So on physical exam, there was a little bit of muscle loss across the dorsum. She had tachycardia, but she also kind of had some muffled heart sounds. Uh, she had some tachy mucous membranes. She was panting. A little bit of increased effort in that panting, like... Heavy breathing. So heavy the, breathing. The respiratory quality was not normal. Not normal. Okay. Um, and we had a normal temperature, and they also said there was a pendulous abdomen, and they could kind of tap it and see a little bit of a fluid wave. Oh, no. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's not good. How how was the heart rate? It was actually 150 beats per minute. Okay, that's pretty fast. Yeah. (laughs) For a Doberman (laughs) specifically. And not a scared Doberman either. Okay. So, um, let's talk differentials. So, muffled heart sounds, tachycardia, fluid wave in the abdomen. Okay. It's giving heart disease. It is definitely Uh, um, giving heart disease. (laughs) So uh, dilated cardiomyopathy is the most common type of heart issue that we see in large breed dogs. So I think that needs to be on our list. Mm -hmm. I think we should also probably add heartworm disease to the list. This pet was seen in the South, so it should be on there. Mm -hmm. Mangiosarcoma. Yeah, so something, um, you know, maybe with like a co-occurring pericardial effusion, I've seen that happen. 
where the dog comes in with the bleeding spleen and the bleeding heart tumor mm-hmm. at the same time just for extra fun. Yep. Okay, yeah, good. Um, you know, or maybe some other type of heart-based tumor creating a pericardial effusion. Um, and then that led to heart failure. And now that that's got ascites, you know, so something like that. Um, anything else? I always, in an older dog with a whole bunch of problems like this, I'm just going to put generalized cancer on my list. <laughs> I call it the the tumor suit. Animal has is wearing a tumor suit. <laughs> Got to figure out where it is. You have to search the pockets to find which that, one's mm-hmm. hiding. Correct. That's correct. Okay, doc. Based on our differential list, we need to come up with a testing wish list. So we definitely want to see what's inside. I agree. So maybe x-rays of the chest. Yes. If we have ultrasound, I would love to see if that is actually fluid that's in that abdomen. Mm-hmm. I think that's an excellent idea. Maybe while you're looking in, in, with ultrasound in the abdomen, accidentally move it to the chest. And look for <laughs> pleural effusion, yeah. lines, pericardial effusion, Correct. any other BS. Yeah. Yeah. You can also evaluate the heart contractility. And all of those things are very accessible for general practitioners. You don't have to be a specialist to be able to, to do a thoracic ultrasound. Okay. So our vet blue exam. Right. Okay. We've talked about that on the podcast before with Dr. Nobles. If we do see fluid, I think I'd want to know what it is. Mm-hmm. Sample the fluid. Love it. And definitely CBC, Kim, your analysis, kind of minimum database, see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like cardiogram. Yeah, definitely help us look for uh, arrhythmias. Maybe a pro-BNP test. I know there is a point-of-care pro-BNP for cats, but I think there's you have to send it out for dogs, right? I think that's still the case. Okay. That is something I would definitely have to check. Yeah. I. It, uh, when I work at the specialty ER, we always send it out, and I feel like we would super order it if there was no <laughs> test. So if you're listening to this podcast and you know of a point-of-care test, please let me know, and I will order it. <laughs> or rather, I will ask them to order it. <laughs> okay, maybe x-rays of the abdomen, but if an effusion really is present, I don't think that's going to be super-duper helpful. And then I always like to put on the list like a radiology consultation. Because especially when I'm evaluating thoracic films in older dogs, for some reason, I'm like, we know, especially when they're digital, you can see every little detail. And I'm like, now, is this a normal thorax or severe disease? (laughs) One or the other. I can't tell. You know, sometimes it's like a little bit ambiguous to me. And so having that safety net of the radiologist to be like, yes. You have interpreted this correctly, or no, girl, you have missed the mark on this. Right. <laughs> really helps, especially if you're in an emergency setting. I definitely feel like the more detailed the digital radiographs have gotten, the more things that I see. And I'm like, I've never seen that before. So it must be disease. And they're like, no, 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 this yeah. is just more normal structures yeah. that you didn't see before when you had a crappy radiograph machine. <laughs> and, and I don't know about. When you came through, but when I came through Auburn, we learned on plain film. Like we, everything was plain film. We got digital, like when I was on clinics, but as far as all of my training, the classes, everything like that, it was a hundred percent 
plain film, every test I took on radiology, plain film. And so maybe it's like I almost need to go through radiology class again, but with digital because it's like you just see so much more yeah. than you ever, I mean, could. So we were about 50-50 with plain film on testing and digital. Um, but even I've had a couple of clinics that I've worked at upgrade their digital machine. And the digital machine that we had at Auburn in 2013 and the brand spanking new ones that are out now, there is a huge difference in the amount of mm-hmm. detail that Absolutely. you can see. For yeah. sure. I agree. So maybe the radiologist can help us uh, with any ambiguous findings. I would love that. Yes. Although sometimes I get back a thing and the radiologist is like, correlate to clinical findings. And I'm like, bitch. (laughs) (laughs) I got one the other day on emergency that said, may possibly be xyz and i was like why did i email you why why did i ask (laughs) this is our complaint about radiologists cover your ass (laughs) well i mean yeah i don't want them to be firm about something they're not firm about but sometimes i am like are girl really off the pot girl okay anyways um okay so we've talked about our diagnostic wish list what were they able to do in this particular case? So the fortunate thing was, is that the client said, do whatever could be done. The unfortunate thing was, is that at this clinic, ultrasound was not available. Okay. Well, I think that's still fairly common uh, in general practice. I mean, Mm -hmm. so yeah. Okay. So no ultrasound. Thumbs down. Yeah, okay. You have an ultrasound and nobody knows how to use it. <laughs> yeah, That's I have unfortunately fun. seen that too. Um, so if we felt really, really confident that there was like a fluid wave, uh, maybe even took x-rays and saw like, oh, there's no cirrhosal detail at all. And you were like, there's an effusion. You can always do like a blind tap to try to get a fluid analysis. So you could do that. They were able to do radiographs. Um, okay. Big dog. It sounded like there was pretty limited staff so they just did thoracic radiographs um and it seemed like with that respiratory effort they did them as quickly as possible um but they showed some scant fluid in the pleural space so kind of you can see the little outline of the lungs um but not like a whole bunch of fluid in the pleural space um and that was but it was enough to obscure the heart on the the lateral view and then on the vd enlarged cardiac silhouette was seen And then, oh, it does look like they got, okay, so they got the beginning of abdominal radiograph. So like that first, you know, you're taking the the thorax and you kind of get the top half a little bit. So like the visible portion. Visible portion of the abdomen. Yep. And they just had a whole bunch of loss of cirrhosal detail. Okay. So it sounds like we got the fluid. Yeah. All right. Uh, CBC and chemistry were kind of boring. A little bit of increased phosphorus, a little bit of decreased calcium on both of those. And they were able to get an EKG. They saw the tachycardia that they already saw. Mm-hmm. And one to two drop beats every 30 to 60 seconds. Okay. But no, like, major arrhythmia, no PVCs, you know, something like that. None of that. Okay. Also, the pet had had a recent heartworm test. And it was negative. negative. Okay. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Good. Okay. Fantastic. 
Okay, well, because we got a few things going on here, uh, I think let's look at a problem list. Mild pleural effusion, tachycardia, arrhythmia, abdominal effusion. Okay, so for the pleural effusion, thoracocentesis, which is uh, where we go into the chest with a needle and draw the fluid out when it's between the lung and the body space, or the body wall, when it's in the space between the lung and the body wall. Typically, that's that's what we would want to do, but it sounds like you said scant fluid. Pretty scant fluid and, you know, sticking things in a chest cavity, always exciting. More exciting when you don't have an ultrasound to guide you. I agree. And I think that the clinician was like, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Look, fair enough. And I'm going to be honest with you. If I saw scant effusion... Um, and I didn't have an ultrasound, I don't know that I would have, you know, done a thoracocentesis either, unless the pet was having major labored breathing. And sometimes you just got to do it. I think there are emergency clinicians um, and maybe even like emergency critical care specialists who would be like, yeah, put that needle on in there, which, you know, was the worst thing that could happen. And I'm like, oh, so... So others might have a different opinion. We'll just say that. And this pet is not in overt respiratory distress. Correct. So I think it's reasonable to skip that. Okay. Did they tamp the fluid in the belly? I think that they did a little. Not a, we're tapping this for treatment reasons, but we're going to take a teeny bit of this. Yeah, for like diagnostic Correct. And they just saw, oh, this is a serious fluid Okay. Thin, watery, a little bit of a golden color, and kind of called it a day on that. So a transudator, modified transudator. Correct. Okay, so not bleeding into the belly. Not bleeding into the belly. Okay, so um, this is looking really cardiac. Let's talk about a working diagnosis for this pet. So, working diagnosis of dilated cardiomyopathy definitely high on our list with a presentation like this in a Doberman. Yeah. So we've got the tachycardia, we've got the respiratory distress, we've got an abdominal effusion, which we'll talk about in just a little bit here. It's a Doberman, it's a large dog. I mean, I think that it's kind of that until proven otherwise, really. What is dilated cardiomyopathy? So dilated cardiomyopathy is a myocardial disease in which there is decreased cardiac contractility, and that leads to a compensatory dilation of the ventricles. Dilated cardiomyopathy is the most common myocardial disease of dogs and the second most common cardiac disease of dogs overall. There are two etiologies, primary and secondary. Primary DCM is like idiopathic or genetic, maybe even autoimmune, we think. This is an inherited disorder in several breeds of dogs. There is, the inheritance pattern is autosomal dominant with incomplete penetrance. That means that not all at-risk dogs will develop actual clinical disease. And then the secondary etiology is secondary to things like persistent tachycardia, so elevated heart rate for a long time, potential toxicity to chemotherapeutic agents like doxorubicin or epirubicin. Dogs with muscular dystrophy might uh, 
develop secondary DCM. Dogs with infections like parvovirus, Borreliosis, or trypanosomiasis might develop DCM. Certain metabolic conditions might create the disorder. And then finally, nutritional disorders can. And then maybe hypothyroidism and Addison's disease. There is some speculation that that might be the case, but we don't have firm research on this yet. And then lastly, nutritional. So grain-free, legume-rich foods, especially those that have white or sweet potatoes as a main ingredient, uh, have been implicated in the development of DCM in dogs. And this doesn't really appear to be associated with a taurine deficiency in the dog. So it's not that the foods are taurine deficient. Taurine deficiency is one of the more common nutritional causes of DCM. We are not 100% sure at this time why the grain-free diets do this. And um, that's where we're at. That's where we're at. <laughs> so that, that's all the types. That's all the types. So no matter what the cause is, the result is ventricular eccentric hypertrophy due to volume overload, which is typically an enlargement of the left ventricle. So when there's decreasing heart contractility, Stroke volume decreases and the body responds by retaining fluid and increasing preload. And over time, the body responds so that stroke volume can be preserved. The enlargement of the ventricle progresses as contractility continues to worsen, and eventually the heart reaches the limit of its hypertrophy and continued increases in preload lead to the congestive heart failure. And in some cases, you basically get a loss of your myofibers, the muscle, and it's replaced with fibrous or fatty tissue. There's also atrial enlargement due to increased preload, which can lead to atrioventricular annulus enlargement and secondary mitral valve insufficiency. Atrial and ventricular arrhythmias develop due to the electrical instability of the myocardium. And arrhythmias can make the heart failure worse and lead to sudden death in some breeds, including the Doberman Pinscher. Dun, dun, dun. JJ, what are some common physical examination findings in dogs with dilated cardiomyopathy? They have a history of eating a grain-free diet or homemade diet. Um, a murmur may or not be present due to associated mitral valve disease. Gallop rhythm or arrhythmia may be noted possible weak femoral pulses, possible signs of left-sided heart failure like tachypnea, tachycardia, dyspnea, cough, cyanosis, and syncope, or signs of right-sided heart failure, which is less common like ascites. You might see nonspecific signs like decreased appetite or anorexia, lethargy, weakness, weight loss, that sort of thing. If pulmonary edema is present, um, there may be crackles on auscultation. They're often asymptomatic until congestive heart failure or significant arrhythmia develops. In one study, the most common findings were tachypnea, dyspnea, cough, exercise intolerance, weakness, weak or irregular pulses, anorexia, heart murmur, weight loss, and syncope. It sounds like you're reading the side effects like at the end of a commercial. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> I was proud that I waited through all those that fast. Normally, I'm like, duh, 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 duh. particular study, depression, ascites, and gallop rhythm were noted less often. Um, sometimes sudden death is the only clinical sign. Yeah. That's Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yep. 
So what kind of test results can we see with this? So on a chemistry profile, uh, usually pretty boring. Most of the time it'll be normal. You might see elevations in ALT. And then if severe congestive heart failure is present, maybe some pre-renal azotemia, so elevation in the urea, nitrogen, and creatinine might be noted. On radiographs, you'll see cardiomegaly in severe DCM, left atrial enlargement. But the thing about it is the cardiomegaly can be difficult to interpret in deep-chested dogs, so it's super important to use that vertebral heart score on those guys. If they're in congestive heart failure, you'll see pulmonary edema, pulmonary venous distension, and pleural effusion. On ECG, you might see increased P waves and increased QRS amplitude and duration. Now, these signs are nonspecific, so you might see them, but if you do see them, that doesn't mean, boom, we have DCM. Atrial fibrillation is common with this disease, especially in large dogs. Ventricular tachyarrhythmias are also common, especially in Doberman pinchers. Dun, dun, dun. And then VPCs or PVCs, I've heard it either way, but this is premature ventricular contractions, uh, are often noted, but sometimes they're intermittent. So you might have to put the dog on a halter monitor to uh, find them if they're there. If you're lucky enough to have an ultrasound, an echocardiogram is going to be your best anamortem test. So you can actually ultrasound the heart. You or somebody that can right. can ultrasound the heart. <laughs> what you're going to see, decreased systolic function and left ventricular enlargement. Those are our classic findings. And if you take that ultrasound and move it down to the tummy, uh, if we're in right heart failure, you might see hepatic venous distension or ascites. As we mentioned earlier, ascites is less common. You don't see that as often with dilated cardiomyopathy, but it can happen. You can do a taurine assay. Maybe it's in the literature. Mm -hmm. eh. Yeah, I couldn't find. I, I just found mentions of it. Like, hey, this is available, and it's like, okay, well, that <laughs> that is something that we would do it. if we had a kitty cat. That's right. How about on a cat? Yeah. <laughs> All right. How about a nice cat patient? And then the pro BNP test. Um, so in terminal pro B type naturetic peptide is what we're talking about. It is that. created and released by cardiomyocytes in response to stretching. So there's a direct correlation with severity of DCM disease in dogs and increases in the pro BNP. It can be used in combination with the halter monitor for early detection of DCM, especially in Doberman pinchers. <laughs> in the Doberman, NT pro BNP is elevated at all stages of the disease. An interpretation may depend on the breed of the dog. So you might need to adjust your, quote, normal ranges depending on the breed. Dr. Greider, what I'm really hearing is, is that if a Doberman walks into your bar... And it has something uh -huh. looking like a heart problem. Okay. It's probably going to be DCM. Well, it that would be, a uh, yeah, I mean, a high chance. And we're going to talk about this in just a little bit. But if a Doberman walks into your clinic even feeling happy and it's over to your three years of age, you probably should run this test on it. Uh, well, we'll get to that in a little while. I see that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cardiac troponin 1 is another marker of cardiac myocyte damage, but 
to my knowledge, is not used near as much as that ProBMP. I agree. I agree. Uh, unfortunately, one test that we sometimes have to use is necropsy, okay? So sometimes sudden death does occur, and when those guys are sent to necropsy, you might see the following findings. Moderate to significant dilation of all four cardiac chambers. The heart itself may appear grossly loose or floppy and easily collapse. And like for people that have seen what a heart looks and feels like, it's like solid, you know, it's like, you know, like feeling a muscle because that's what it is. But if it's all droopy and floppy, it's like, okay, this has been stretched out a lot. The size and weight measurements of the heart will be higher than typical for the size of the dog. On histology, you might see fiber hypertrophy, myofibril fragmentation, focal muscle atrophy and fibrosis with increased deposition of macrophages. This is especially in the left papillary muscles and left atrium. Uh, And in some forms of DCM, myofibers will look wavy, while in others, there will be fatty infiltration and myocardial degeneration. So they also have genetic tests for the Portuguese water dog, Doberman Pinscher, Standard and Giant Schnauzer, Welsh Springer Spaniel, and the Boxer. There's not one single genetic test for all of those breeds, but they're breed-specific testing. We don't have details for each of those breeds. Just look them up if you're interested and you suspect the patient has a Doberman has sorry if you suspect that the patient is, is a doberman, doberman. if you uh, suspect the patient has a dcm but while we're talking about the doberman it is one of the most common breeds to get dcm there are two genetic mutations the pdk4 and the ttn or titan mutation and dogs with both mutations have the highest risk of developing clinical disease but even if they only have one they can develop disease. And Dobermans can develop the disease without either of these mutations, meaning that we may have some other mutations that haven't been identified. So the overall breed prevalence in the Doberman is 58%. Mm -hmm. So let's just all pause for a second and appreciate like truly how shitty it is that 58% Prevalence. I mean, 58% prevalence. That means overall in the breed, more than half of them get it. Yeah. That's crazy. Naughty breeders. So we recommend a yearly screening. Well, we recommend a yearly screening of a cult (laughs) DCM is recommended starting at three years of age with a Holter monitor, a ProBMP, and an echocardiogram. Deaths occur between five and 10 years in 75% of affected dogs. Yeah. Sucks. It does suck. It really sucks. But, you know, you can screen for it, and if you know about it, then you can monitor and you can get them on medication when they need to be put on medicine. So, yeah, yeah if you have a Doberman or you see a Doberman come into your practice, you need to be screening for this. Very important. Mm-hmm. JJ, mm-hmm. tell me what types of dogs usually get Dilated cardiomyopathy. Dobermans. Dobermans. (laughs) So normally you see it in large or giant purebred dogs. Um, Primary DCM is rare in a mixed breed dog. Overall prevalence in dog population is 0.5%. Compare this to the 58% of Dobermans. That's insane. Sorry, that's insane. That's absolutely insane. Okay. 
There may be a predisposition in male dogs. In one study, 74% of the affected dogs were male. In this study, median age at diagnosis was six and a half years. Um, It's a range of 4.7 to 8.5 years. How is DCM treated? Okay, so for preclinical disease, pemibendin and benazapril. Okay, let's talk about those things in more detail for a second. So there is a really exciting study called the PROTECT study, and this showed that pemibendin extends the time of onset of clinical signs and extends survival in affected dogs, even when it started before they've developed clinical signs of the disease. So this is why it's so important to screen for it so that we can get them on medication early, because medication can help bias a lot of time. Dr. Grader, nothing makes me feel as old as knowing that this study did not exist and was not in my internal medicine book (laughs) when I graduated. (laughs) So the treatment has changed in the the last 10 years. And the study itself is uh, now getting some age on it, too, Dr. Grader. In fact... (laughs) It's not like the study isn't brand new, either. (laughs) when When I was studying up to do this... Dr. Greider said, hey, can you do a literature review? And I said, sure. I've got Ettinger from when I was in school. And Ettinger, circa 2010, which was brand new when I was a second year, said, there's really nothing you can give to extend the time of clinical of onset of clinical signs. There's really nothing to do until they develop clinical DCM. Maybe benazapril. I don't know. And now we know that there are indeed medications that you can give that will extend survival and on time to onset of clinical signs. Mm-hmm. It's wild how medicine progresses <laughs> in a decade or more. <laughs> okay. Could be worse. You could be mine. That's true. So, <laughs> benazapril, benazapril may delay progression of occult DCM as well. This was not the PROTECT study, but a different study. We will put our references in the show notes and at the end, as always. Okay, let's talk about clinical DCM. So when a pet comes in clinically affected with DCM, the goal of treatment is going to be to reduce the signs of heart failure, to decrease the arrhythmias, and to improve survival. Uh, We're going to use pemibendin in those guys as well. We often need to use diuretics and ACE inhibitors. Right-sided versus left-sided heart failure is treated depending on the presentation of the patient. I would strongly recommend anyone questioning, hmm, what are the differences between those things? To go hop on VIN and read the chapters for right and left-sided heart failure. There's a lot of overlap, but some things are a little bit different. Arrhythmias are managed with antiarrhythmic drugs as needed. But we want to avoid beta blockers because of the negative ionotropic effects. Again, please read these chapters. <laughs> please do not get your sole information for treatment of DCM from this podcast. And then finally, there are some experimental therapies. And I don't know how to say this word. Aptimer? That sounds right to me. Aptimer therapy. Uh, seems to work based on one study in Dobermans, but more research is needed. Uh, this is the use of oligonucleotides to bind proteins, and they're directed against the beta-1 AAB protein. 
The study on this showed longer survival times and decreased incidence of sudden death, but again, more research is needed. And then there are currently ongoing studies about gene transfer therapy, so it'll be interesting to see what develops there over time. JJ, mm-hmm. what is the prognosis for DCM in dogs? Dogs with the occult disease may remain asymptomatic for years. Uh, the younger the age of diagnosis, the faster progression and the worse the prognosis. Poor prognostic indicators include prolonged QRS duration of greater than 60 milliseconds, restrictive transmitral flow, decreased ejection fraction, ascites, and congestive heart failure. When patients with DCM suffer sudden death across a variety of breeds, this has been associated with ventricular tachycardia and fibrillation. The only predictor of sudden death in Dobermans that we know of is echocardiographic documentation of really severe volume overload of the left ventricle. In Dobermans with atrial fibrillation, this is those with atrial fibrillation either also having congestive heart failure or without congestive heart failure, they had shorter survival times than those without atrial fibrillation. So we know that in Dobermans, atrial fibrillation is a negative prognostic indicator. In the Irish wolfhound, one predictor of sudden death was the spontaneous presence of premature ventricular contractions during a three-minute ECG recording. And then, interestingly, the elevation of total bilirubin has also been associated with increased mortality in dogs with DCM. And this is regardless of the cardiac disease stage or breed. And I am not sure why that is the case, but it was in the literature. Interesting. So... DCM, as we said, can be associated with those grain-free boutique diets, and those guys have similar short-term survival rates as the ones that are primary, like our Dobermans. Once you know that you've got DCM associated with that grain-free food, you're going to want to change the diet to something that is not going to cause that, but you're going to see dough change for months. It's going to take a while to see a positive effect. One study showed that once they changed the diet, they had a mean survival time of almost a year, about 340 days, compared to a mean standard time of survival of only about 200 days if they just stayed on that grain-free food. So it's not verified either, but it's suggested and it makes sense that if the dog has been on a grain-free food for a shorter period of time, their prognosis is better than if they've been on it for years and years and years. In dogs with DCM that develop congestive heart failure, uh, their survival time is usually pretty short, like three to 12 months. Uh, In the Doberman Pinscher, about 75% with congestive heart failure die within three months of developing clinical signs. Hmm. So that's, that's, really discouraging. Um, However, there are trials with pimabendin that have suggested that survival can be increased to up to 12 months in these dogs. And atypical breeds, so those that we don't usually think of as, as getting DCM, but here we are, we have the diagnosis. They have a much more variable prognosis 
but even then the survival is still less than one year once they develop heart failure. JJ, what can we do to prevent dilated cardiomyopathy? So dogs that are affected by this and any of their um, close relatives definitely don't use those for breeding. Breeds like the Doberman, Giant, and Standard Schnauzer, Portuguese Water Dog, and Welsh Springer Spaniel. They should all have uh, screening done to make sure that they don't have this. So what happened to our Doberman? Ideally, this pet would be hospitalized and transferred somewhere that they could get an echocardiogram to confirm that this wasn't DCM. But in this case, the client declined because of cost and the travel. It was about 45 to minutes to an hour to get to a place that had echocardiogram. So um, they declined any sort of transfer. So they wanted outpatient care. Because the pet was mostly stable, that was considered reasonable, um, but they had a very, very long discussion uh, with the veterinarian about that case being very guarded, disease likely to progress, as we discussed above. These guys, if they're in congestive heart failure, about three months is our survival time. So... That all being said, they treated with furosemide in the hospital that day and then sent home with oral furosemide, pimibendin, and nalapril. And then since the dog was also showing nausea signs, well, lack of appetite. Oh, I guess the dog did have vomiting too. Yeah, so yeah, nausea vomit. signs yeah. went with serenia as well, which I honestly think serenia is going to be the new steroid. Yeah, we've talked you know, about, I think we've and, talked about that before on an episode <laughs> yeah, of Yeah, exactly. In, in 30 years, everybody's just going to be like, give it serenia, it's fine. Don't let anything die without the no. benefit of serenia, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, <laughs> and the owner was also recommended, uh, told to monitor the uh, respiratory rate at home, the resting respiratory rate, um, mostly because, as well, especially with the furosemide, um, there's instructions when you're looking in your plums for the furosemide that you should go up on your dose if... Uh, you have increased respiratory effort and down on your dose um, if you have lethargy and lack of appetite. Huh. I'm pretty sure this probably made it very difficult for the client because the dog presented with increased respiratory effort, lethargy, and lack of appetite. So, you know what my go to is? Sleeping respiratory rate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was what was recommended for the client as well. is sleeping respiratory rate and it was a pretty we'll say moderate to heavy handed dose on that furosemide i think to start with well you got to yeah for sure Mm -hmm. so (laughs) yeah some cardiologists i know are like give the furosemide you know like they're just like give it some i don't care so um and then um the uh client was also told kind of along with this is to follow up kind of asap and then if the dog declined over that, it was a long holiday weekend to, you know, seek emergency care, even though he wasn't going to be going to that 24-hour facility with Echo, seek emergency care at the, there was a kind of a closer after-hours weekend clinic as well. So do we have any follow-up? Yeah, so it sounds like the client ended up not coming back for that recheck, but they did end up coming by to purchase refills 
of the furosemide, the pimibendin, and the enalapril about two to four weeks after this initial presentation, signifying that the pet was still alive. One would think that that would be the case. Hopefully. Okay. Um, there, and I believe that there was just one refill of those medications, and then there was no refill. So presumably the pet was alive at two to four weeks and then passed away sometime after that. I mean, I think that's reasonable. You know, you have a situation where, you know, for whatever reason, the owner can't accept the primary recommendation, which is to, you know, get to a specialty hospital, a place where they can do testing that's not available in this particular general practice. And the owner's like, Doc, I just can't do it. Uh, and that happens all the time. And so then, you know, we can't just kick them out on the curb and be like, get out of here, person who can't do everything that we say. We got to come up with some other thing. So what I like when we see cases like this where the owner can't do everything is the good communication between the veterinarian and the owner um, where I am the one telling them, like, these are the best things that we can do and these are the risks that we take if we can't do all of the things, but these are some other things that we could do. And the client understands and empathizes that we're all on the same page fighting the problem versus me not being able to do everything and now they're mad because I can't do everything because they've tied my hands. Yeah, I agree. I think. Um... I think that there is a lot of room in these cases for practicing our solid communication skills and trying to not let um, the owner's inability to follow our recommendations, like to, to, to not take that personally and approach things from a collaborative problem-solving standpoint rather than a, a frustration standpoint. And um I, I really appreciate it, too, when I have clients who are really upfront with me about what they can and can't do. That makes my job so much easier. And so I'll say that I, in situations like this where I've really recommended one particular thing and they're like, look, we can't do it. Um, if they're really upfront about that, I'm able to, to help them much more than if they are maybe causing a scene or different things like that and, and unwilling to, to listen. I think sometimes there might be get some, maybe get some ego in there or something like that, and it can get kind of tense. But what I like about this case is that the owner was just super upfront. Yeah, I agree. I agree. The other thing about being upfront is, is it means that you can go ahead and form a plan based on what they tell you mm -hmm. rather than starting out forming the gold standard plan and then in the middle of that, them, them telling you something then you having to change and then them telling you something else and you having to change again. It's a lot easier when they're super, super, super honest with you about what they can and can't do so that you can make a plan that fits in with their, their needs and their goals for care. Yeah, I agree. And then I'll just mention also, you know, that sometimes the absolute best effort in the world to find something that you both feel comfortable with might fail. And then that's when I reach for my AMA form where I uh, feel confident that I have, you know, counseled the owner about the risks and have fully explained why I'm making the recommendations I'm making, but they just can't do it. Then I'm like, okay, 
let sign an AMA form so that we can both have in writing, like we talked about these things and I understand what the vet is saying, but I've decided that I can do that. And sometimes, sometimes the initiation of an AMA form will actually prompt owners to stop and be like, oh, they're really serious about this. And then sometimes it, it doesn't result in any change of the plan, but I rest a little bit more comfortably knowing that I have done everything in my power to communicate the seriousness of the situation. Um, and then, then you just gotta, gotta go on. Yeah. I think, I think the, the final thing with that is, is that I always remember with these cases that some of them will get better because of you. Some of them will get better in spite of you and some of them will (laughs) get better no matter what you do. And I've definitely had, (laughs) I've had cases where I thought, I knew what was going on. It was, you know, the Doberman walking into the bar and I gave them a poor prognosis or something like that. And I did everything I could on the veterinary side. They declined the treatment and the dog did great mm-hmm. with nothing. So it wasn't DCM. Right. But it wasn't this, you know, it wasn't I mean, this it wasn't case. This, but not yeah. But the, like yeah. something where, you know, you are pretty sure that this dog is doing really, really bad. The client can't do anything. They leave. And then six months later, they're like, ha ha. It's better. And I'm like, cool. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. Uh, I had this one case uh, one time. It was a smallish dog. And it came in with these raised nodules all over its skin. And the nodules would rupture and drain. And it looked... I'm talking about this looked like a fungal disease case, okay? It looked like blasto. I've seen a thousand blasto cases that look like that. I was like, this dog is going to have fungal disease. And we, you know, sent tests out, nothing. We did cytology, nothing. We like, like we, we were like doing everything possible because I was like, oh no, it's fungal disease, you know? And we kept coming up empty, okay? And then... I, the owner was like, look, doc, I, you know, I'm out of money for tests. Okay. We only have money for treatment. Okay. Well, I have tried every way possible that I know how to document fungal disease and I have not been able to. So I actually, I don't think that's what it is. So I was reading in this like obscure textbook and it was mentioning uh, this like inflammatory like a some sort of like immune mediated situation that causes this on the skin it's not common and i was like i I don't know this might be it and they were like well it's this or euthanasia so i'd like to try medicine and i was like okay i'm putting it on steroids which you know like i personally hate that and i super put on steroids and i want you to know that the next week the dog came back and it had no new nodules all the open nodules have stopped draining and all the ones that were there were going down and it was like tap dancing across the, you know, <laughs> lobby as where it had been feeling sick. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, are you fucking kidding me? So sometimes I've had my conservative care patients like do pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> One time I also had this cat that had been hit by a car uh, that was neurologic in the back end uh, and x-rays didn't show any fractures or anything, but the owners really couldn't do anything. And so I put the cat on rest and pain medicine and steroids and it totally just got completely better. Like it went from being super duper unable to walk to like running around within like three days. Amazing. I think it's funny because there's a few things that are old 
professors told us in passing. Yeah. And then they were like, but not really, but not really. And one of them was, you can just put a cat in a box, broken a broken cat in a box, and it'll heal. Because <laughs> they're so small. Right? Yeah. yeah. And they're like, but not really, but not really. You should, you know... But then there's this time where you have to do that because that's all that the client will let you do. And it's not, it sometimes works. And you're like, but really, right? Yeah. And then the other one is, is that you shouldn't let anything die without steroids. Yeah. But not really. But not really. Like, I'm not saying, disclaimer, we, I'm not saying you should do that. <laughs> we've but talked, not really. I mean, <laughs> look, we've talked about this on the podcast before. I think with Dr. Nobles, probably. Yeah. At, yeah. Le- at least with Dr. Nobles. And um, when I was in vet school, it happened to be at the time when the steroid um, pendulum yeah. was very fully swung towards the side of don't ever give steroids for anything, a-hole, you know, kind of a thing. And so when I would be in class, my professors would literally say, like, don't let anything die without the benefit of steroids as a thing of, like, <laughs> stupid general practitioners with this mumbo jumbo. Don't anyone don't let anyone tell you that. But then I got out into practice and I was like, it's up. It's true. It's so super true. It's very true. It's super true. <laughs> it's super true. I'm not saying start that from the beginning. Right. I'm but just we, saying if we can't do anything else. We're out of cupcakes. No more cupcakes. Zero cupcakes. Okay. All the cupcakes have been used. Yeah. And we're like not 100% ready to say goodbye. To, yeah. Steroid helmet. Steroid it is. Now, do not use steroids for DCM. That's not no, going to be very helpful. Okay, not That's help. not what we're saying. We're just saying in general. Okay. <laughs> I feel the need to step in for a second and say, we're not talking about this case no. as far as like the treatment. We're talking about this case as far as spectrum of care. And now we have gone off topic. Correct. For anyone who was driving a while and zoned out and zoned back in and are like, <laughs> steroids? Okay, I've never heard of that. I'll mark that down. No, that's not what we're saying, okay? No. Like, keep up. <laughs> like, <laughs> this, the conversation has moved on. Okay. Right. Okay, well, that's uh, all the time we have for today. Dr. Agnew, thank you so much for bringing case to us. Yes. And for also researching some on the case. <laughs> it's helpful. Even if it was from 2010. I'm so sorry. <laughs> if you have questions, cases, or anything else you'd like for us to read, please send it to introvetspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find us on social media. We're on Facebook, TikTok, and Instagram. And it's at introvets. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help. Sure do. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.